I've resisted therapy for almost all of my 54 years. Now, I'm not sure whether it was from watching Woody Allen movies and going, ah, you know, therapy's just something for neurotic Jewish New Yorkers, or whether, and this is probably truer, whether it's more deeply rooted in a, I'm all right, grit your teeth, just muscle through it way of seeing the world. The person who changed all of this for me was Dan Siegel and reading a book of his called Mindsight. And that was the moment when I realized that therapy could not only be about fixing what's broken, but also, and this is the, the resonant thing for me, around integration. Integrating consciousness and unconsciousness, body and mind, different types of memory, past and present, who I am, and who I want to be. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS. This is the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. Today, I'm speaking with Naomi Shregi. She is a psychotherapist who's been practicing for over 30 years. She's a freelance journalist for the Financial Times, and that's where I discovered her. I read an article she wrote there. And she's the author of a book, The Man Who Mistook His Job for His Life, which, this is embarrassing to admit, is a contender for the title of my autobiography, or maybe my biography. <laughs> and that's why I needed to have this conversation with Naomi. That book of hers, The Man Who Mistook His Job for His Life, has its genesis in the work she does. I guess uh, what, what, about 15 years ago, really, what, I noticed something changing in my practice, and this is where it all began. I, I noticed people were coming to therapy and bringing much more work-related issues. And that made me very curious. And that made me focus a bit more on work-related issues. And what's happening? Why are people bringing to therapy more problems from work? According to Naomi, her book was an effort to explore people's unconscious motivations behind their behavior and their decisions in the workplace. Many people were coming to me uh, knowing that they were doing things badly in the workplace, perhaps uh, they couldn't delegate work, or they were consumed by perfectionism, or, you know, they got caught up in these work habits, and, and, and they were given all the best advice in the world, but they couldn't change, they couldn't stop. So my interest is, why do people find it so difficult to change, even when they recognize that their behavior or their approach is harming themselves or harming their business, and they still can't stop? So my approach, of course, is to dig more deeply and try to untangle the unconscious motivations behind their behavior. And oftentimes that's where the solutions lie. So I am always curious to know, what is it that motivates a person to dedicate their life to understanding why humans do what we do? Sometimes it's curiosity. I, that might be me. I'm pretty nosy. But for Naomi, it was more than that. It's more than curiosity. It felt like it answered a deep need. My, my parents were both survivors of concentration camps in Europe. And uh, much of my upbringing was influenced by that, which I'll, I'll discuss a bit more. So I was always interested and curious about making sense of people's, perhaps their odd behavior, irrational behavior, difficult behavior, because I had to make sense of this in my own family. And I think that's where it began. We'll talk more about Naomi's experiences growing up in just a bit and her story's gripping. But first, I wanted to know what, as a psychotherapist, constitutes success? I mean, how do you measure that? 
how does she know her clients are making progress when they're dealing with deep trauma or daily work life? Mm. Well, what I'm always looking for with people, I always want them to understand something that hasn't been understood. So people come with their confusion, of course. And, Mm. you know, that's the best thing to bring to therapy. You know, your confusion, your worries, Mm. things don't make sense. So when I see people gain some clarity, uh, can see things more clearly, uh, that shows me that they've succeeded. And, you know, you, you talk about the evolution of your practice and starting to see more people from bringing work issues into conversation with you. Is your hypothesis that something's changed about work or is it just easier to talk about the crap that goes on at work with a therapist? And, or it, what, what's your hypothesis for why your practice started to evolve and change like that? That's a great question. Um, Yeah, my hypothesis is people are bringing more issues about work because they're identifying a lot more with work. People are spending (laughs) more time at work. Mm. They're they're mental, emotional, physical energy really is focused on work. So Mm. what I find interesting, and this is my hypothesis, is that you know, uh, because I talk, of course, about how people's earlier experiences are acted out in the workplace. And I say that, that people, now I see people are acting out their early lives more in the workplace, even more so than they are in their personal relationships, more so than their own families. So people come to see me and say, well, things at home are fine, but you know, I've got this thing going on with my colleagues. He's driving Drama me crazy. Everywhere. Drama's yeah. everywhere. Yeah. So the dramas that are getting acted out are happening more at work than at home. Mm. And that's what interests me. Um, because people, perhaps, yeah. they're pretty prepared to say, uh, I've married my mother. She's just like my mother, just <laughs> like my father. I, this right. is all happening all over again. But they yeah. don't consider how they might be reenacting their dramas in the workplace. Huh. And that's what I'm seeing more of. That's what I find interesting. That is interesting. Uh, I'm just, this is such an interesting conversation for me. You know, for, for a number of years, I've tried to use the Cartman drama triangle as a way of explaining dynamics to people. This is the victim, persecutor, rescuer, which is based on, as I understand it, transactional analysis, which is the adult parent child explanation of relationships. And I've always, I know I've always gone, the, the drama triangle is better and easier because it doesn't bring any of the kind of actual language of family relationships into the work thing because it felt a bit odd, a bit personal. When you frame that conversation with people going, you know, the, the stuff from your past, the confusion from your past, it may be presenting itself in a, in a dynamic that's showing up at work. My reaction might be, Duh, come on, it's just work. It's not family stuff. I'm curious to know whether you get resistance around that or whether people are like, oh, light bulb moment. Mm-hmm. Well, keep in mind, if people are coming to see me, they know I'm a psychotherapist as well. That specializes in work-related issues. Oh, so I let yeah. people know from the beginning yeah. that I'm going to probe a lot and yeah. I'm going to dig as deeply as we need to dig to solve mm. the problem that they bring uh, into my consulting room. So... Um, so that's kind of a given. I let people know from the get-go that yeah. uh, we'll dig as deeply as we need to go to understand this. And, you know, when people come to see me, they've got a serious problem. Right. Uh, they've got a serious problem. And uh, I, I find that people are willing to go anywhere 
as long as we can solve this problem. Oh, and, and once they can make, start to make these connections, aha, I, I, I can't face situations at work because it resonates with some conflict I had with that I saw my parents having when I was quite young and I, yeah. I can't face it and it triggers these feelings. And once they can start to make these connections and once they can start to see how this work works, I think they're um, they're always willing and uh, to go, to go a bit deeply, and 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 then they find it quite, and then they become quite curious. You know, mm. what else can we what else can we discover? What else can we find out? And 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 of course, because the results are, uh, they find that they that their uh, work habits start to change, that relationships yeah. at work start to feel quite not so tense, or there might be some tension, but there is not those overwhelming feelings that can paralyze one in the workplace. Mm. So they're feeling things less intensely. They find that they're they're relating much easier. In other words, they're starting to feel the benefits in not much time. So yeah, they're pretty open, pretty open. I love that. Is there a way you've come to help people nurture that curiosity? Because, you know, curiosity is this odd thing, which is if you're not curious, it's hard to be curious. And curiosity tends to build on curiosity. The more curious you are, the more curious you get. Um, how do you, you know, I'm guessing that people arrive a little tender in that first conversation with you, a little kind of interested, but also anxious about going too far. How do you, how do you bolster their courage and their curiosity to keep exploring this? Right. I, I can imagine me showing up going, I see where you're pointing and I'm backing away from that because it's mucky <laughs> and murky and you know, sticky and I don't want to go there at all. Yeah. Well, there are some uh, tricks, uh, mm. perhaps, uh, I, might, I might try. Look, it's not an easy process and I let everyone know from the get-go that this isn't a feel-good process. I'm not in the business of 12 steps to make you happy at work sort of thing yeah. or succeed. I'm, I'm here to help you face parts of yourself that are really uncomfortable and mm. they're interfering with your capacity to work effectively and interfering with your capacity to r- relate and cooperate and collaborate, collaborate as well as you could. So, you know, from the get go, you know, I let people know that this is an uncomfortable process, but we'll do it yeah. together. You know, you're not going to be alone yes. in it and right. you're pretty much in safe hands with me. I think so once we establish something of a relationship and then I begin to point out that whatever they're doing, you know, is, is, uh, uh, could be harming them anyway. In other words, it's, it's not serving them basically, and it could be harming the business. So somewhere the motivation has to come from somewhere, you know, you talk about courage and perhaps I might reframe that and say, how are they going to dig up the motivation in order to go there? And the motivation oftentimes comes from facing what is actually happening and right. recognizing that it, it's pretty problematic, really. And right. uh, there's some harm coming from this. So once people face a situation as it is, sometimes I think, okay, let's, okay. let's, 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 really let's see where it comes. This kind of understanding that the status quo is obviously bearable because you're bearing it, but it may not be as acceptable as you are convincing yourself <laughs> yeah you're like this needs to change yeah or for some people it may not be bearable mm. you know and that's why they come from help there's some situation there, yeah. yeah 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 i hear you yeah. i mean what, what book have you chosen for us oh right okay well i've, I've chosen i'll show, put it up so you can see it oh, at yeah, least okay yeah, yeah. 
It's uh, a book I've chosen is called uh, See Under Love by uh, mm. David Grossman. He's uh, an Israeli writer. And uh, this is a book um, not just about the Holocaust, but what happened to the survivors and their families following the war. Now, I, re I read this book in the 90s, and I was completely blown away right. because um, David Grossman was able to put into words my inexplicable experience as a child. Uh. You know, I was born into the world that Grossman describes in this book. You know, it's a place in Israel in the 1950s where survivors of Nazi concentration camps came by the thousands. Right. Now, these were people who were fleeing from the horror of the Holocaust, but they mm -hmm. brought their nightmares with them. Right. And included in that wave of immigration were my parents. And wow. this is where I was born. So this story, David Grossman's story, begins with Momek. He's a nine-year-old boy who was haunted by his parents' suffering. Mm. But like all survivors at the time, they said very little because what happened to them was just too horrible to talk about. Right. So it can only be referred to as over there. Mm. Over there implying, of course, that it's not over. Right. So his Aunt Bella leaves a clue. She says to Momek, there's a Nazi beast that lives over there, but in fact can reside and erupt in any living being. Right. So this frightened Momek imagines the Nazi beast as a monster that controlled the land called Over There, where it tortured the people he loves and did things to them that hurt them forever. Right. So Momek makes a plan. He captures animals in the street. He captures a cat, a pigeon, random animals. He puts them in cages and he decides he needs to find and face the Nazi beast inside them. So this was my world. Wow. Okay. My parents, especially my mother, was terribly damaged from the camps. Mm. And somehow I could see in her mind, she never quite left there. She was, right. she was always, always scared. So like Momek, I was desperate to understand what happened. And I had this idea as a child that if people knew what was happening, if they understood, it never would have happened. So I made myself the one to understand and to explain. I tried to face what my parents couldn't talk about. Mm. But, you know, of course, now we know that people did know and that didn't stop the Holocaust from happening. But as a child, that's what I believed. Well, that's what you hope. Yes. <laughs> like it's just, you just don't know better, but actually maybe not so much. Yeah. That's, that's right. So, you know, interesting, quite late in life, my mother admitted to me, that the real reason we left Israel and came to America is because someone had told her that the best psychiatrists were in America. Mm. And that's why. So, you know, she could feel she was going mad, of course, because wow. of everything that happened. Mm -hmm. And I think she was frightened. She couldn't look after her two young children, um, but she couldn't get the help she needed in Israel. So that's why we came to America on looking for the best psychiatrist to help my parents. Yes. So I'd say, this is where my training as a psychotherapist probably began. Yeah, I can see <laughs> that. that. This book must have been extraordinary. I mean, did you, was it handed to you? Did you just come across it accidentally or was it being kind of passed around your circle? Somebody went, Naomi, you need to read this. 
No, I, I, you know, I can't remember, in fact, how it, how it came into my hands. I mean, he's quite a well-known writer today, David Grossman. He has a, a book yes. of prize-winning novel. So, but at the time, he wasn't known. This could have been his first novel, and I think his best novel, I think. Yeah. Um, but when I read it, I was completely <laughs> blown away for a wow. writer to get inside to my complicated <laughs> little mind and see the world through my wor- my eyes was just yeah. extraordinary. But I'll tell you something else I found very interesting is that when I read the book, I thought he must be a child of survivors because how mm. could anybody else know this? But he's not. Wow. And so that really blows me away because yeah. it just goes to show because these days people talk about how you have to have an experience in order to write about it. But mm. It's not that he has the experience. What he has is an incredibly deep empathy. And mm-hmm. I think that's what we need. The fact that he could write about my experience. And, and I think this whole story is about trying to put into words what is so difficult to put into words. And of course, as a psychotherapist, words are our tools. All we right. have is words. And mm. what I try to help people to do is to find words for their experience. And that's tremendously, tremendously healing. Words can do yeah. so much. So I, that's yeah. why this book. I mean, what, a, what an extraordinary and wonderful introduction. I mean, you've, you've set it up so beautifully for us. So thank you for that. Um, I'd love to hear the two pages that you've chosen for us. Okay, um, I'll be delighted to read them. Momok had the beast to fight in various ways he thought up from day to day because it was clearer than ever now that he must not fail. This was really serious. Too many people and things were involved and everything depended on him. And if the beast wouldn't take off its disguise, it was just being trickier than him, that's all. It had more combat experience than he had. But if it ever did decide to show itself, It would show itself to Momik and no one else, because who else but Momik would challenge it like this, with so much daring, chutzpah, and the devotion of soldiers who charge ahead and fling themselves on the barbed wire fence so the others can climb over them. And by the end of winter, when the wind was having one last fling at wrecking Bet Mizal, Momik reversed his tactics, figuring that what he needed in order to fight the beast was the very thing that most scared it. The thing he'd been avoiding all along, which was to get to know more about the beast and its crimes. Because otherwise, he'd just be wasting energy, no matter what he did. Because the fact of the matter is, he didn't have a clue about how to fight it. And that's the truth. Which is how he got involved with the Holocaust and all that. In total secrecy, Momik joined the public library. His parents wouldn't allow him to be a member of two libraries. And he would take the number 18 bus to town some afternoons and read everything the library had on it. The library had a big shelf with a sign saying, Library of the Holocaust and Valor. And Momik started going through it book by book. He read incredibly fast because he was afraid that time was running out. And though he didn't understand most of it, He knew that someday he would. He read Mysteries of Fate and the Diary of Anne Frank, Let Me Stay the Night, Fifel, The Dollhouse, The Cigarette Vendors of Three Cross Square, and many other books. The children he met in the library 
were kind of like him, like he'd always felt deep inside all these years. They spoke Yiddish at home with their parents and didn't have to hide it. And they were also fighting the beast, which is the main thing. On the days Momik didn't go to the library, he would spend hours in the gloomy cellar. From a quarter to two in the afternoon, till it got dark, and even a few minutes after sometimes, he would sit on the cold floor in front of the animals with their shiny eyes and nasty noises, and the way they tried to act as if they didn't care when he was around. But he knew it could happen any minute, because obviously even the beast would crack up if you made it nervous enough by studying its crimes in a scientific way. And by sitting and staring at it so maddeningly, day after day, and it took all Momix's efforts to sit there one minute more, two minutes more, with his feet firmly planted to keep him from beating it out of there. And he started making weird noises like wheezing or like a kitten squealing. He was beginning to remind himself of grandfather with all these noises. But he stayed put even after the light coming through the tiny slit in the window faded and it was pitch dark. And he was doing this because of what seemed to be a very important clue which he found tucked slyly away in Mysteries of Fate where it said distinctly, from utter darkness sprang the Nazi beast. Day after day in the adult reading room at the public library, Momik sat on a high back chair with his feet dangling down he told Hillel, the librarian, he was working on a special report for school about the Holocaust, and no one asked any questions. He read history books with tiny print about what the Nazis did, and stumbled over a lot of words and expressions that weren't used anymore. He puzzled over some peculiar photographs. He couldn't figure out what was going on and what went where, but deep down inside, he began to sense that these photographs might reveal the first part of the secret everyone had tried to keep from him. There were pictures of a mother and father forced to choose between two children, to choose which one would stay with them and which one would go away forever. And he tried to figure out how they would choose, according to what? And he saw a picture of a soldier forcing an old man to ride another old man like a horse and he saw pictures of executions in ways he never knew existed. And he saw pictures of graves where a lot of dead people lay in the strangest positions on top of each other, with somebody's foot stuck in somebody else's face and somebody's head on so crooked, Momik couldn't twist his head around like that. And so little by little, Momik started to understand new things, like how weak the human body is, for instance and how it can break in so many shapes and directions if you want to break it, and how weak a thing a family is if you want to break it. Just like that, it happens and it's over. At six in the evening, Momik would leave the library, tired and quiet. On the bus home, he didn't see or hear anything. Almost every day at recess, he would sneak out of school and detour around the street where the lottery booth is to Bella's grocery store. He would get there all out of breath, pull her by the hand to the corner and start firing questions at her in a whisper that was more like a roar. What was the death train, Bella? Why did they kill little children? 
What do people feel when they have to dig their own graves? Did Hitler have a mother? Did they really use the soap they made out of human beings? Where do they kill people nowadays? Wow. Well, that is a wonderful, extraordinary passage, really. I mean, that just that presence of the darkness and the anxiety around that darkness. Um, what's at the heart of it for you, Naomi? Well, the heart of the story, of course, is a child desperate to help his parents, desperate to stop the suffering. You know, a child, I think I felt like myself, wanted mm. parents who were intact uh, and didn't know how to help them. And I think it tells a story because, you know, children are really very useful. And if their parents are traumatized, as say mine were, I don't know if traumatized is a word, but, you know, children want to help them. And oftentimes when they help them, what, what they do is they try to take on their traumas. Mm. And, and as I try to do, try to face what my parents had to face, um, but of course, that never works for children. They only end up traumatizing themselves. Mm. And of course, they can't take away their parents' pain, but, but they try to, as I tried to do, as this child tried to do. Yeah. And uh, that was, that's at the heart of the story for me. Now, I mean, how do you navigate a relationship when the other person is traumatized and in pain and is struggling? You know, that hunger that we feel, I feel, to jump in and fix it and solve it and help and be the rescuer and how futile that so often appears. It's, it's kind of their journey, their life. How do you find the balance between supporting them without taking on the burden that this is your problem to fix? Mm. Well, of course, you know, we, we can't do that, of course, but what we can do for people is to be present for them and with mm. them and, and and know that they so they know they don't need to face this alone mm -hmm. i think it's a tremendous thing to be able to do to say to somebody is i'm here i'm present and i can bear your story i can bear your right. pain you know, one of the one of the lines that struck me from the reading was you know um our hero mumak he didn't have a clue how to fight it <laughs> um you know, in the work you do, Naomi, I'm wondering, well, I'm just wondering about that line. And as you think about people who arrive and feel helpless and hopeless, like they don't have a clue, where, where do you start? You know, where do you start to move from not having a clue to finding a clue to, to solve the thing that you're trying to solve? Well, maybe if we can bring it back to what I'm doing now and mm. what this book is about, which is what I'm really trying to do now is help people to solve their work-related problems and what's happening yes. to them in their present, of course. But of course, some of those solutions, some of those answers really uh, lie in our unconscious. Yeah. So, of course, uh, in our conversations, um, I'm attempting to help them dig in into uh, bring their, if you like, unconscious experiences to conscious awareness where they can have some control over them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that happens in the course of our relationship and conversations uh, by making connections between the past and the present and perhaps 
offering some uh, suggestions as to what might lie in the back of their mind or deeper in their right. unconscious, you know, to try to bring their these unconscious experiences to their awareness. You know, if we if we move that conversation to thinking about how work, you know, problems at work. Yeah. You know, and I was thinking about this before our conversation, which is, you know, you've got these two forces. One is a person showing up in all their messy glory with their, you know, bits that work and their bits that are a bit broken and dented. And then you've got the dynamic of work itself, which is its own context and its own um, way of working. Can, can you ever be fully human at work or is work itself a structure and a system that kind of, I'm not sure what the right word is, maybe amplifies what's broken or amplifies dysfunctional relationships? I'm struggling a bit to know what question to ask, Naomi. I, I, you might think you're struggling to know what to ask, but in fact, you've asked absolutely the right question, which is, which is, can work bear for us to be human? Because of mm. course we all are. You know, you know, when we come to work, uh, of course we come with our ambitions, we come with our desires. We want to, we want to achieve. We want to be successful. We want to promote ourselves. We want all of these things, but we're also also human. And what we bring to work also is our sensitivities, sometimes our confusion, our strong feelings, right. our misperceptions. All of that comes to work with us. So I think that's the difficulty, and that's what I try to write about, of course. You yeah. know, there's not much – work doesn't have much tolerance for some of these internal conflicts that we struggle with. We might right. feel things very strongly, but work isn't necessarily the place to express strong feelings. So what do we do with all those strong feelings? Right. Where do they go in the workplace? Where do they land? What happens? Mm -hmm. Of course we have them. Of course they're there. Of course they affect the working culture and working environment, but it's not spoken about. And there really isn't the space at work to understand. You know, in our, fa our families are quite willing to put up with quite a lot of our moods. <laughs> <laughs> and different That's sides fine. of ourselves. I mean, fine. they might not have the patience for it, but they're not going to reject us. They're just going to say, right. you know, we're just a bit crazy, yeah. whatever it is yeah. that families say <laughs> to us when they get fed up with us. But yeah. work is a lot less tolerant. Mm. Uh, so work doesn't really allow, not only does work not allow for much expression of feelings, but there really isn't the space at work. You know, people at work want quick solutions. They're always asking me, okay, what can we do? How can we fix yeah. this? We need to know this now. And of course, at the, alongside this is a whole, a whole sort of internal lives that people are bringing to work, which is a bit mm. more complex than that, you know, where things don't shift so quickly, yeah. you know. Um, yeah. uh, I was speaking to somebody yesterday who absolutely cannot let go of work, has to get his hands, he's a CEO, but he's got to get his hands into everything. Mm. Everybody. Mm. So, even though he knows that it's not his role, really, and he knows he's irritating his team, and he knows he's feeling overwhelmed, you know, he can't quite stop himself. Now, right. we need to take the time to understand <laughs> what's going on inside him and why it is he feels he can't let go of control. So there's not an easy solution here. But I do right. think that work needs to acknowledge, you know, mm -hmm. that everyone's coming in and they're bringing their messy lives in the workplace. People aren't leaving them at home, although work might wish it. And the other thing, by the way, about work, I say work doesn't like one or strong feelings. It doesn't want us to express that really, but 
but it wants our good ones. It wants us right. to feel passionate, where it wants us to be collaborative, to be empathetic, you know, right. innovative, enthusiastic. enthusiastic. Yes, all of that. It's like work wants all of our good feelings, but doesn't mm. want our bad ones. Well, that's not mm-hmm. possible. That's not humanly yeah. possible. If we have feelings, they come with the good and the bad. Mm. And work has to acknowledge that bad feelings exist. And, you know, the other thing is a whole culture where people shouldn't be upset or they should be made not to feel bad, but bad things happen. We can't deny them. Yeah. I think. Well, Naomi, if I'm if I'm trying to make my small part of work a little more human, if I'm a manager or a leader or just a contributor but that has a sphere of influence of some sort, are there specific things that you think I could do that could contribute to people feeling more human at work? Well, there's a, I, I think there are a few things that leaders can do to help people feel more human. One, of course, the leaders can, themselves can be more human. Right. You know? <laughs> Physician, heal thyself, yeah. Exactly, exactly. So they can show a little vulnerability. They don't have to show mm. a lot, but they can show a little vulnerability. Yeah. They can show that they can make mistakes and it's not the end of the world. So these are things, of course, that leaders can do. And leaders can also show that they have the courage to face situations at work. And I think this is one of the most important things. You know, there's so many leaders, not just leaders, so many people who are so fearful of conflict that there's Mm. so many situations in the workplace that aren't dealt with because people don't want to deal with things that are uncomfortable or terrifying. So if you're the sort of leader that avoids uncomfortable situations because they're difficult to deal with, you know, uh, first of all, you're going to lose respect very quickly. Right. People are going to see that you're somebody who doesn't have the courage to deal with stuff. But you're also creating a, a culture where people think, God, it, things aren't really safe because if things go wrong, there's nobody in charge to deal with right. them. It's ironic that enabling conflict creates safety often rather than um, thinking, trying to avoid it to go, this is the safer thing to do, often has a counterintuitive uh, impact which has becomes less safe for people mm. so nomi i i'm an i'm going to call myself an overachiever quite driven quite ambitious quite kind of wrapped up in work and the the, the sense of meaning i get from my work um you know in some ways we've been talking a little bit about people who are struggling this is where i'm confused is what's hard but I'm sure you've talked to people who are kind of like maybe like your CEO, achievers, driven, focused, identifying quite a lot with who they are through their work. Where do you start to have that conversation? Well, with with the overachievers themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Like if I'm if I'm in a conversation with you, <laughs> where do you start? Okay. Well, keep in mind that if I'm having a conversation with an overachiever, they're coming to me because things have gone badly wrong. Right. So, uh, you know, uh, I think for overachievers, one of the things to say is, you know, these are people that found, I think usually early on in their lives, by the way, that achieving or winning solves some psychological problem for them. Mm. Okay. It either got them the parents' attention, maybe protected them from bullying, perhaps whatever it might've been, winning solves some psychological problem so something got fixed in their mind i mean i'm, I'm talking about really quite extreme overachievers usually yeah, yeah. usually the roots come early in life so um so from an early age i think 
you know, they've concluded that the only solution to everything is winning. Yeah. So, you know, that they put that above everything else, but then there are parts of themselves, of course, that become neglected in order to achieve, in order to win. You know, we've seen these overachievers. How do they work 18 hour days, 15, 16, 17, some of them 18 hour days? Why they're, they're quite detached from their bodies. They, they've gotten, Mm. you know, they're so obsessed about achieving that they've lost touch with their normal body cues for sleep for food for rest you know they don't know something's gone wrong until they crash they either burn out or they get ill or something quite serious happens i I find that you know these people are they find it really difficult to change because Mm. winning means everything and if that's your only solution the and the other thing about achieving is like overachievers the sad thing is, is that they seem to not be able to hold on to their wins. So even though they've achieved something, as soon as they've right. achieved it, it's gone. Right. And so they have to achieve the next thing and it has to be higher. So they're always raising the bar mm. and whatever they have achieved, it's not as if they've accumulated all these successes in order to feel better about themselves. <laughs> they still right. don't feel good about themselves. So yeah. it's quite a difficult psychological Conundrum thing to to, yeah, yeah, very, very, very complicated. Very complicated. I mean, it feels like I could talk to you for a long time about work, about what we bring to work, about the role of work in shaping us as humans and the role of us in shaping work to be more human-centered. Um, but maybe as a final question, what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said in this conversation between you and me? Well, I think, you know, uh, even though what we've talked about today and what I talk about in my work are people encouraging people to examine themselves more deeply, their unconscious, their inner lives, their inner worlds, and all of it, as you mentioned earlier, might sound a bit scary for some Mm -hmm. people. You know, what I'd like to say is the intention of all of this is to bring a bit more humanity to work, you know, to help people. I hope people will feel more compassionate, let's say, with their colleagues and even Mm. their bosses, to recognize, even though your boss may seem like a monster or your colleagues might seem completely irrational, they're also human beings. They also bring all this sort of internal trouble to work with them as well. So I hope people bring, be more compassionate at work uh, and and more compassionate with themselves and give you, let yourself off the hook as well. And, and, And recognize that you're trying to, if you like, juggle the demands of the workplace with the tensions of your inner workings. And that's not easy for anyone. So the latest version of COVID seems to be dying down or passing, or maybe we're just getting more used to it. So I'm experimenting at the moment. And most Wednesdays, I have dinner with two other people. They're different every time. And these are people I I know a little bit. They're part of my circle, but they're not kind of the inner circle, not part of my kind of core group of friends. And it's a chance to sit down, kind of reconnect with these people, introduce one brilliant person to another brilliant person, and of course, to have a, a good cocktail as well. Now, I kind of lightly facilitate these gatherings. I ask people to introduce themselves by saying, share two essential things with us, which is also juicy (laughs) because when you say two essential things people have to think hard about what what that actually means to them 
But after they've introduced ourselves, or you know, we've all introduced ourselves, um, I ask them to pick from a selection of questions that I've written out. There are five questions, so each person picks one of the questions there. Um, the questions change each week, depending on what I'm in the mood for. And it's really interesting to understand what questions people pick. And then it's really interesting to try and answer them. We all answer every question. So last night, which was one of my gatherings, the question was, what are you pretending you don't know? What are you pretending you don't know? I mean, isn't that great? It's so slippery. It's like, what are you in denial about? But it's somehow less easy to resist. Now, Naomi, in our conversation, you'll remember this, said to her, said to me, people come to her when things have started to go badly wrong. And things aren't there with me yet. I wouldn't say things are going badly wrong. But here's the connection. I am definitely pretending that I am not as dependent on work for meaning in my life than I really am. And this conversation with Naomi has really got me thinking about where does that drive come from? You know, what keeps pushing me to work hard, create more, reach out, have more impact? Really to connect back to the start of this, it's making me think of Dan Siegel and his work. And how might I integrate working and living in a new and different way? If you enjoyed the conversation with Naomi and me, I've got a couple of other interviews from the Two Pages series to suggest. Uh, Tope Floren, a poet, writer, and also an executive director, so doing good in the world, both in terms of his writing and his activism. Um, his conversation is called Living in Two Worlds. Uh, he reads from a Icelandic poet, which is kind of marvelous. And then Jessica Abel is a second one I'd like to suggest. Um, my interview with her is called How to Survive Being Creative. She is a creative and she teaches people what it takes to do work and stay creative and feel like you are nourished by your work, not kind of ground down by it. So I think you'll enjoy that conversation as well. For more on Naomi, you want to go to her website, which is just her name. So Naomi Shraggy. I'll spell it for you because both of those words are slightly tricky. Naomi, N-A-O-M-I and shraggy, S-H-R-A-G-A-I dot com, Naomi dot com. Thanks for listening. Thank you for a review on whatever your podcast platform is. That means a lot. It's how people figure out what podcast to listen to and gives us a little bit of credibility. Um, stars, written words, all good. Um, if you want a little bit more, uh, we do have the Duke Humphreys membership. It's totally free but it's where you can access transcripts of all the conversations, also some additional interviews that we won't be releasing through the, the mainstream podcast. I believe that's all I need to tell you, other than you're awesome, you're doing great.